This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich. Seven seconds to go. Three-pointer. Oh, Double order. And Scott Phillips. <laughs> Covering game-by-game odds and futures markets. Thomas, shake, crossover, step back. Outside Shots, presented by the Lions. This is Outside Shots, the college hoops podcast for Benny underdogs on a nightly basis where we discuss how in the world Gonzaga blows a seven-point lead with a minute 40 left against Baylor and, of course, breaking down everything else you need to know on the college basketball odds board presented by thelines.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and leave a five-star review, and you'll have a chance to win an Amazon gift card for $25. And if you're watching on YouTube, give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, ring the bell to get notifications whenever a new episode is up. And The Lines is also giving away a $25 Amazon gift card in our daily college basketball pick'em contest. For more details, head over to play.thelines.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich, and you can follow Scott Phillips, my co-host, on Twitter at Phillips Hoops. Follow the lines on Twitter at the lines US. Scott, how are we doing after a fun college basketball weekend? Yeah, it was great to see the ACC Big Ten Challenge. We got to see some conference openers and some shocking results already, including you know Northwestern and Chris Collins, your boy, going into East Lansing and getting <laughs> a win. What is happening here? Uh, but you know. That's what you get this season so far. We're going to talk about that a little bit in terms of the futures outlooks for some of these teams, but there really is no clear-cut juggernaut favorite right now, and a lot of these preseason favorites have slipped a little bit since we started episode one, and we're going to touch on a lot of those numbers and where they might stand going forward, but yeah, I mean, the big takeaway for me so far this season is we're not really seeing a clear-cut favorite. This isn't a Baylor-Gonzaga scenario from two years ago where they were head and shoulders above the rest of college basketball, and there's a lot of major question marks with a lot of the best teams in the country. Yeah, and that's pretty much what you said on the first podcast. That's what we touched on <laughs> on our preseason podcast. It felt like it was going back to late October for us or early November because you look at the National Title Futures Odds Board, which you could find over at thelines.com under March Madness Odds. Houston is the favorite at around plus 600, plus 700, as high as plus 750 over at DraftKings. Then Texas, which opened the season around plus 2,500, so 25 to 1-ish, sitting around 10, 12 to 1. Then it's Kentucky, Baylor, Arizona, which was higher on the odds board when you go back to the preseason. Gonzaga, which was one of the favorites to win it all, going back to the beginning of the season so far. Purdue is after Gonzaga, so both teams around 20 to 1. UConn also in the mix, along with Virginia. So let's start off with the teams that have sunk a bit, because to your point, that's the most interesting storyline to begin the season, is you had a North Carolina near the top of the odds board, Favorite at some of the books, priced around 9 or 10 to 1 to win it all. And they struggled mightily this last week after losing a couple games in the PK-85. UNC loses to Indiana on the road. They lose to Virginia Tech without Armando Baycott. And they're shooting 29 
48.3% from behind the arc, Scott. Now, you think about that percentage, and that's kind of where I want to start with the Tar Heels, because you would expect that number to regress positively, and you would expect also Shot Quality, which is one of our sponsors on the show, and if you head over to ShotQualityBets.com, it's your home for smarter basketball betting models. The Shot Quality betting model makes projections based on expected scores, eliminating variability, and increasing predictive accuracy Ready to win more bets? Head over to shotqualitybets.com today. So that three-point percentage for North Carolina, just under 30%. Shot quality, in ter- so in terms of the quality of looks that North Carolina is getting from behind the arc, they only have that number around 30%. So it's not like North Carolina is missing open looks, which shot quality typically matches the eye test. And we touched on this a lot to begin the season. Without Brady Manick, North Carolina doesn't have a contested shot maker. And without Armando Baycott on the floor, like we saw against Virginia Tech, they don't really have, or they they clearly don't have a big when teams hedge on those ball screens to dominate in the pick and roll. So for a team that runs a lot of pick and roll, for a team that runs a lot of isolation sets, it's not going so well. And I don't think it's going to get much better. No, they're relying on guys to finish themselves and to make pro caliber plays. And with Armando Baycott being hurt for these last couple games and them not being 100%, really exposing a lot of weaknesses, Eli. You mentioned that three-point shooting, how bad it's been. To me, the number that's really jarring is they're one of the teams that's last in the country at assists to field goals made. They're just not moving the ball. They're not trusting each other. They're not running offense except for, you know, trying to play some hero ball and going at it themselves. And sometimes you need that sort of thing. We saw Caleb Love have some takeover spots in the 4-OT game against Alabama. Sometimes you need to have your studs just break guys off the dribble and make plays. But, you know, again, we talked about the lack of the depth pieces early in the season and how those guys haven't really developed besides for Seth Trimble and DeMarco Dunn. Uh, you're not really seeing a lot. Puff Johnson is, you know, filling a role as well. But, I mean, this is a really short bench. They've already experienced an injury issue with Baycott. They're not playing well together when everybody is on the floor. This is a trouble spot for the Tar Heels, particularly when you look at their schedule and the lack of quality opponents that they have going down the line. I mean, you start to talk about their long-term outlook and their seeding projection for the NCAA tournament. They're 5-4. and four. Their best non-conference games coming up are against Ohio State and Michigan, both on you know neutral-ish settings. You have, obviously, Virginia and Duke during ACC play, but the rest of the ACC looks very weak outside of Miami. Maybe an NC State gets intriguing in the middle, but... They're running out of opportunities for quality wins and to push themselves into a top four seeding position. So, you know, if you're looking for a futures outlook, I'm definitely holding and not putting anything on North Carolina (laughs) at this current time. They could dip more in value and you could see that happen. But to me, I don't love where their seeding is going to be at in March, given what we've seen so far. The only win that they got at the PK was against Portland. Right, right. You lose to Iowa State. You lose to Alabama in that four overtime game, and then Baycott gets hurt, wasn't effective. Pete Nance, man, watching him try to defend Trace Jackson Davis on Wednesday night was, I don't even know the comparison for a a big bet. It was bad, and it was almost as bad as Brady Manick trying to defend David McCormick in the national title game (laughs) for UNC. Granted, that's because Baycott got hurt. So now you're putting, again, Pete Nance is a fine player, but you made a great point, and I want to as we keep rolling along here on the odds board, just last thing on UNC, Pete Nance was the guy at Northwestern. He's a fine player, but he's not as much of a consistent threat from three, especially when you consider how many contested threes Maddock made for this team to bail them out on some 
isolation sets when Caleb Love couldn't break you down off the dribble, when RJ Davis couldn't break the opposition down off the dribble, and he wasn't hitting pull-up shots with under five seconds to go on the shot clock. So UNC is around 25, 26 to 1, as high as 26 to 1 to win it all. Needless to say that neither of us are interested in a UNC future, even though they're a little bit higher up on the odds board, or much higher up than they were to begin the college basketball season. Let's head over to Gonzaga, Scott. They opened the season at plus 900. After the loss to Baylor, they're as high as 20 to 1 on DraftKings and FanDuel. What stands out to you most about the Zags? To me, again, we've talked about the guard play a lot, so I'm going to skip past that. We know that there's a lot of shakiness with Nolan Hickman at sophomore there, and they haven't had their bench produce as much as they had hoped. But to me, it's similar to North Carolina from a futures outlook in that they've already lost three matchups, and they're losing opportunities to gain quality wins against good competition. This isn't a year where it looks like their conference is going to have anybody outside of St. Mary's be an NCAA tournament at-large team, so that automatically reduces your number of quality games. There is a a neutral game against Alabama that will be a showcase opportunity on December 17th. But again, like if you're looking at Gonzaga and you want them to be a top four seed, as we've seen consistently over the last decade with five number one seeds and multiple number two seeds, those opportunities are starting to dry up very quickly, particularly if other teams surge above Gonzaga, as we've seen it with some of these teams and projections for futures in this November slate. But you know, to me, again, there's a lot of issues at play here. They're losing out on opportunities to win quality matchups. And when they don't have those quality matchups and they're like a 7 through 11 seed, obviously a very dangerous 7 through 11 seed, but that's not the type of futures number that you want to play. You don't want to play that type of seed at this type of number. So for me, this is a stay away opportunity again. There's a lot of question marks on the perimeter. <laughs> I don't think Drew Timmy has a lot of help protecting the rim. And, you know, this team has some things that they need to fix immediately if they're going to run away with the WCC as they have in the past. No doubt. And two points that I want to hit on that you mentioned. First off, with the schedule and how that translates to the futures market. And it's similar to North Carolina in a couple senses because if Gonzaga is, let's say, they end up a four or five seed. If you bet a 20 to one future, you're asking said team to be a one or a two seed. So there's zero value in a 20 to one ticket for a four seed, even no matter how dangerous they are in the tournament, that number is, is not valuable. So I'm with you from that standpoint. And then you mentioned defense and obviously guard play, which we've touched on a lot on these podcasts, Nolan Hickman playing poorly, didn't hit a jump shot against Baylor. And that was a big reason why they blew a seven point lead. As I started off the podcast with, with a minute 40 left to Baylor. But if you look at synergy and shot quality, while they're still top 20, top 10 even on Kempom and adjusted defensive efficiency, Gonzaga's bottom 75 across a ton of college basketball defensive metrics, especially when you look at rim protection and dribble penetration. We hit on it a lot, not having Chad Holmgren, and you mentioned it too with Drew Timmy, not having any sort of help defensively. Gonzaga lacks a rim protector. So a lot of issues for this Gonzaga team, and I'm with you, zero value in that number over to the uh, another team that has risen a little bit on the odds board in a negative sense is Kentucky because they opened the season similar to UNC similar to Gonzaga around 10 to 1 now as high as 16 to 1 on points bet watching that game against Michigan and I know they were they nearly covered against the Wolverines Michigan hit some shots with under two minutes to go to allow them after a first half that was pretty competitive and within the first five minutes of the first half or second half, that is, 
Wolverines got back into it and covered that game. So toss up, I would say, over the course of 40 minutes, whether Kentucky should or shouldn't have covered against Michigan. But you look at shot efficiency and shooting percentages for Oscar Shibway. What an award winner last year was around 25 to 1 to win the award around this time last season. He's not nearly as efficient when you look at effective field goal percentage and true shooting percentage around the basket as he was last year. And you think about Kentucky's offense, and this is what stands out to me because you watch their sets and where they're most efficient, it's within ball screen, pick and roll situations. And when Sheboy can't space the floor and he's not really a shooting threat, and then you have Severe Wheeler, besides when he tosses up threes with two seconds left on the shot clock that go in miraculously like he did against Michigan, Reeves is shooting under or just under 50%, which is an absurd shooting percentage. He's a really good shooter. They lack guys that when they create situations in pick and roll off of off ball sets, that can create, especially when you have two non-shooters on the floor like Shibway and Wheeler. Now, Cason Wallace is playing at a very high level at both ends, but I don't trust John Calipari's offense in half-court sets when you have guys like Wheeler and Shibway on the floor to close out games. Yeah, I like this Kentucky team in terms of what they can provide in terms of a ceiling. I don't love this number for Kentucky, particularly when you look at the SEC and how deep it is at the top. There's going to be more opportunities to get some value out of Kentucky after they lose an SEC game or two in some certain spots. And, you know, for me, as you mentioned, Eli, the shooting is such a huge component of what they're going to be this season. I thought it was encouraging that Antonio Reeves at least started to hit some perimeter shots against Michigan. He's really disappeared in the big games that Kentucky has had so far this season. And, you know, they need Antonio Reeves and Frederick to really space the floor in those opportunities against, you know, those big time opponents. But, you know, Cason Wallace has been one of the best freshmen in college basketball so far. I love what he's done on both ends of the floor and the efficiency that he plays with. He doesn't need a lot of shots to be successful on the offensive end. And, you know, he's kind of provided a little bit of a safety valve and maybe some above average three-point shooting than what we'll see. But yeah, I mean, Kentucky needs Frederick and Reeves to consistently hit threes in SEC play. And outside of Reeves playing well against Michigan, we haven't seen that so far against the big opponents. That's why a little bit skittish at this current number, but I do think that this team has a strong ceiling. So agree to disagree a little bit in the sense, but either way, neither of us are looking at that 16 to 1, 15 to 1 number and saying bat the Wildcats right now. Similar to UNC and Gonzaga. We're not really taking a look at some of these teams higher up on the odds board or lower on the odds board, depending on how you want to look at it. Over to an intriguing team that's risen a bit, and we saw them in the Maui Invitational, a very close loss to Creighton. A comeback win against San Diego State. That's the Arkansas Razorbacks at 14 to 1 with five star freshman Nick Smith back in the lineup after missing a chunk of the early portion of Arkansas slate. Now, Razorbacks are around 22 to 1 across the board. Is that a number that intrigues you considering how well Anthony Black has played at both ends of the floor? And while Arkansas doesn't have a ton of floor spacing, this is a team that thrives in transition and is generating the eighth highest steal percentage in college basketball. I do think that this team has a lot to like about it, Eli, but I am a little bit skittish at that number, particularly when Nick Smith 
just returned to the lineup. He's going to be the focal point of their offense. He's going to have the most shots of anyone in this rotation. And it's a huge thing when you have a true freshman come into a lineup that's already winning, that's already performed at a high level, and then all of a sudden ask other guys to kind of take a step back and watch this freshman shine. And, you know, I think there's a lot of capable pieces on this team. You look at some of these lineups that they can throw out with the talented freshmen like Anthony Black and, you know, the X Factor and Jordan Walsh. Ricky Council's been outstanding, Trayvon Brazil. But, you know, from, you know, five-man lineup perspective, that's as talented as any group in college basketball. But to me, how does this rotation fit together with Nick Smith now that Join the equation? Are there going to be guys that are unhappy and maybe pouting about their minutes, like a Debo Davis? Uh, to me, there's a lot of question marks here. I, I am high on this team, but not at that number. Again, I think with the SEC and how brutal it can be with teams like Tennessee and Auburn in the secondary mix, along with Kentucky, you're just looking at some opportunities for some losses for, or for a lull where maybe that number spikes a little bit and you start to play them at that point. Yeah, I don't I don't love the number either, but I do really like this team talent-wise, and I'm a little higher on them than I was to begin the season. Like you mentioned, when they could play five out with Brazil at the five. Now, if Devo Davis is going to start complaining about minutes, maybe he should look at his three-point percentage because he's shooting around <laughs> 15% from three. We saw it in Maui, how many open looks he got. So maybe that yeah. guy should start to make some shots if he wants to play more than 20 minutes with Nick Smith back on the floor. Yeah, there's just a lot of guys that do the little things on this team. That's what I really like about them. For all the five-star talent and all the impact transfers and things, they seem to kind of play their role and get along with how they've gotten so far. But again, Nick Smith is about to be shooting 15 to 20 shots a game. And when you take that many shots away from other guys, then you start to see how those sorts of things play out. And that's really what I want to see when adversity starts to hit and who they turn to in those spots. Yeah, when you look at their schedule... The Oklahoma game on Saturday, I'm not touching. I know there weren't a ton of returning pieces from that team that lost to the Sooners last season, but a little bit of a revenge spot going back to last year between Arkansas and Oklahoma, and they play on Saturday. We're not going to hit on that game when we when we look at some games for later in the week, but a note there with the Hogs losing by double digits last year to the Sooners, not really a game I'm interested in touching and not really much of a challenge left on this non-conference schedule like you said Scott before we get into SEC play for the Razorbacks one last team that's jumped up on the odds board in a when you look at teams that have seen their odds increase in a negative fashion Duke opened the season at 16 to 1 now as high as 22 to 1 on Caesars Blue Devils probably when you look at the top of the odds board if I was to bet one team that's kind of underachieved and has seen that number balloon just a little bit I really like the outlook of this Duke team, especially when you think about Whitehead, not really, or still kind of recovering from his, what, October injury, Derek Lively not looking super spry offensively. But when those guys start to acclimate to the college level and when Whitehead can really start to dominate in isolation, which you would expect to come, similar to the point you made with Arkansas, yes, Nick Smith is going to be shooting around 15 shots a game, but that's still an elite explosive player for the Hogs once he starts to evolve offensively at the collegiate level. So when Duke gets that type of offensive presence in Whitehead, assuming it does happen, now Proctor needs to space the floor. Duke's shooting is a bit of a question mark, shooting around, want to pull up the exact number here, 30% from three, which is bottom 90 in college basketball. So floor spacing is a little bit of a question mark for this team, but you have a veteran point guard in Jeremy Roach. Ryan Young has made some veteran plays down the stretch, especially when you go back to that Ohio State game last week. Some big 
offensive rebounds to create second chance shots. Jacob Granderson, as when I touch on three-point shooting, has given them another look from three. Filipowski, probably the name I should have mentioned first, arguably one of the best all-around players in college basketball to begin the season. When you think about fouls drawn per 40 minutes, steal percentage, block percentage, defensive rebounding, and the ability to create an isolation. So I really like the upside of this Duke team. The question is, do they have enough floor spacing to to get it done when it comes to March? But among these teams that we've seen their odds shoot up a little bit, I'm pretty intrigued by Duke. Yeah, me too, Eli. You touched on it quite a bit. I mean, Derek Whitehead and Derek Lively getting healthy and seeing what they're finally capable of showing as consensus top five uh, prospects is really where we need to see with this Duke team. And, you know, Lively's starting to look a little bit like himself. They're at least initiating some lobs for him in pick and roll settings. And he's starting to look a little bit more explosive off the floor than he was early in the season. But, you know, again, Filipowski has shown himself to be kind of a go-to guy. He's not afraid of the moment. He'll do a lot of different things like bang inside, but he'll just as easily take you, uh, take you outside and face up and make plays there as well. And, you know, Jeremy Roach is going to be that veteran initiator. And like you said, Tyrese Proctor has been very intriguing over these last couple weeks. He looked a little bit deer in headlights to start the year. I think the shooting is going to improve over time as those numbers may be a little bit lower than how his shooting prowess could look as we saw in the second half of the Champions Classic game. Uh, but again, you know, you look at a two-guard lineup where you have two uh, handlers like Proctor and and Roach, you have Whitehead and Lively getting more healthy. There's some veterans on the bench that you touched on that are doing well. And to me, this ACC is very weak, as we mentioned with the North Carolina bid. And, you know, for Virginia and Duke to kind of take hold of that conference, it wouldn't surprise me one bit. And, you know, that's an opportunity for them to kind of run through a lot of wins and maybe build a solid resume where you do see them as like a three or a four seed, hopefully up to that one to two line, depending on how they really do against teams like Virginia in the elite sense. But, yeah, I like this number for Duke right now, and I, I don't think it's going to get much better. I think that really this is a team that's going to improve from here. They don't have a lot of tests coming up. This Iowa matchup this week is interesting. We'll touch on that in a little bit. But again, they have kind of an easy schedule here to open ACC play with a lot of the you know weaker teams like Florida State and Boston College coming up in the early part of January. And they don't really get attested from the elite sense until they face North Carolina in February. So there's time to acclimate and get Whitehead and Lively involved. And I think that this team has a lot of upside. So among these teams that we've hit on so far, it seems like Duke is the consensus one that if there was one to invest in, I don't think either of us are going to do it, but if there was one team to take a shot at in terms of the odds increasing over the first month of the college basketball season, Duke would be it. On the flip side, teams have seen their odds shorten. Looking at Houston as the favorite to win it all, I kind of want to combine the Cougars and the Texas Longhorns in one specific area. Scott, as you also look at Texas, they opened, like I mentioned, around 25 to 1, as high as 30 to 1. I think it's Caesars now down to in the 10 to 12 1 range to win it all. Two of the best defenses in college basketball. They both pressure the ball and initiate a ton of turnovers, a ton of takeaways, even though Texas only, I think, turned Creighton over eight times. Their ball pressure was a big factor in Creighton's poor three-point shooting last week. But when I touch on three-point shooting, the number is going to regress positively for their opponents. When you look at Houston allowing a 21.2% three-point clip so far to begin the season in Texas, allowing teams to, or teams shooting 23.2% from deep against the Longhorns. So whenever 
we see regression happen for those teams' respective three-point defenses, even though they have elite defenses. And Chris Beard running the no-middle defense, Calvin Sampson for Houston in that elite pick-and-roll defense. When teams can start to exploit their open three-point lucks, then we might see the defensive numbers regress a little bit. That doesn't mean that they don't have dominant defenses, but I think teams can take advantage of Texas and Houston from behind the arc more than we've seen so far. And by extension, you can also take advantage of both of those teams, Eli, because they don't make three-pointers at as consistent of a clip as they could, Texas in particular. I mean, Texas's cold three-point shooting has kept a couple opponents, notably Creighton, in games that they could have easily run away with had they just knocked down a couple shots. Houston, there's a little bit of question marks. They're a little bit better, hovering near the 35% from three-point range, but again, not the best type of look, and they've struggled in some games offensively against you know teams like Kent State and St. Mary's now so you know if you're struggling offensively against an elite opponent who happens to hit some three-pointers that's when things start to get dicey for those types of teams if you go back to the Kent State Houston game sincere carry went not just one of 11 from three but two of 22 from the field and he missed some open looks in that game one of the more underrated mid-major scores in college basketball so that's a game where if Kent State's three-point shooting sees a little bit of regression especially with one of the better on-ball scorers in the country, then they probably win that game outright. So a Houston team that is a little bit limited offensively, to your point, especially at the pace that they play at, Texas has sped it up more offensively. We've seen Tyrese Hunter see some positive variance with his perimeter offense, but across the board, Marcus Carr's contested shot making is there. Sir Jabari Rice could shoot it, but Dylan Mitchell is not a three-point shooter. DeSue is not a consistent three-point threat, and neither is Timmy Allen. So just something to watch for both of us there with, with Houston and Texas, even though we both have Longhorns features to win it all. Now on to Purdue. And starting off with Zach Eady, Scott, who opened the season at around 35-40-1 to 40 to 1 to win the Wooden Award. He is now the favorite to win that respective futures market at 4-1. to 1. What sticks out to you with the Boilermakers sitting at around 18 to 1 after opening the season in the 60 to 1 range? Is Purdue legitimate to you? The story is obviously Zach Eady. I mean, like you said, the odds rise from a 35 40 to now 4 to 1 says it all. But to me, the freshman guards continue to be the key for why Purdue is an 8-0 team as opposed to having a dominant center and losing a game or two. Fletcher Lawyer's been outstanding. Braden Smith has played way above the level that many expected him to play coming out of high school. And there's just a lot of really quality role players on this team who understand how to play around quality big men. Whether they played before with Travion Williams or whether they're playing with Edie in practice, they just know what it takes to space around them to get their big guys touches and with Edie being as potent as he's been particularly you know making nine out of ten free throws against Minnesota I mean when you have a seven foot four guy that finishes through contact and also makes the free throw and you can't do a hack a zack strategy that's really really tough to stop and you know there's still some question marks for this Purdue team in terms of that freshman backcourt I mean the Big Ten is going to be ruthless against a freshman backcourt particularly on the road but you know, when you have that safety valve and Edie in the middle and you have other shooters uh, around you, there's a lot to like here. And, you know, again, I don't love the 18 number right now, but 
again, like this is a team to keep an eye on in terms of the Big Ten race as a whole, in terms of their potential seeding throughout the year. I think their seed is going to be pretty strong. You look at how good the Big Ten is, as long as they don't hit some sort of rock bottom stretch and end up around 500 in conference play, the numbers that they're going to get from their Big Ten uh, conference schedule as opposed to maybe the ACC or some of these other leagues is going to only help them in the end. So I think they're a top four seed given their 8-0 start as long as they don't really have a terrible stretch and again when you look at some of those other numbers down the board I played them at 70 to 1 at a small unit uh, you know that's the type of number I love but the 18 again it's it could go lower if you see some big 10 losses for Purdue early here yeah and one note that we had on on our preseason podcast Scott just and it's similar to Houston and Texas uh Zach Edian drop coverage because Purdue's allowing yes. a 25.3% three-point percentage to their opponents so when teams can space out the boilermakers when teams can space out Zach Edian make him guard one through five. It's going to be tough for Purdue to have a big on the floor like that that is not an agile defender, especially around the perimeter. It's similar to what I saw last year with UConn, and Sonogo has lost weight and has gotten a lot quicker in his ball screen coverage, and Edie is not that. And you also made the point about his ability to draw contact and get to the line and, and make free throws. He has the 11th most fouls drawn for 40 minutes. So, his ability to get to the line and finish around the room at a super efficient rate. Maybe we see a little bit of a regression in that category. But if Purdue faces a team that could space you out, that's where I'm most intrigued. Over to the UConn Husky, Scott, which opened the season around 80 to 1. They're now in the 20 to 1 range, as low as 16 to 1 if you head over to the lines.com and check out the national title futures odds board. You look at Kempom and adjusted offensive efficiency and adjusted defensive efficiency. The Huskies are the only team in college basketball with a top 10 adjusted offense and a top 10 adjusted defense. And that's, again, efficiency per Kempom. You have arguably three NBA players in Adama Sonogo, Jordan Hawkins, and Andre Jackson. So when you think about a team making a leap from the preseason expectations, like we've seen so far with the Huskies, when you have three players like that that have made the leap that Sonogo has with his passing and his ability to space the floor more efficiently, offensively that is and and Hawkins has taken a jump offensively especially with his efficiency from behind the arc and Andre Jackson looks healthier and he's in the lineup now I think he had something like 11 8 and 6 against Oklahoma State so one of the better all-around players in the country and small sample size yes but you mentioned this with one team earlier with UNC I think it was with assist rate UConn has the ninth highest assist percentage in college basketball while allowing the 11th lowest assist percentage of the country. So they're forcing teams to isolate and their passing has been tremendous so far, having a bunch of unselfish guys, even though you have a dominant low post presence like Sonogo. Yeah, I mean, to me, what makes UConn even more fascinating, Eli, is they've had guys like Andre Jackson and Jordan Hawkins who have missed time and had to kind of figure out where their standing is in the rotation and the lineup. And other guys have just stepped up cleanly and made plays, whether it was Tristan Newton in the PK 85 or Donovan Klingon off the bench, winning the MVP of that event. I mean, there are so many pieces that are capable of doing things for this team. And, you know, with Sonogo having so much help this year, whether it's Klingon directly backing him up or Jordan Hawkins, uh, the revelation that he's been uh, spacing the floor. I mean, 
there's a lot to like about this team. To me, after the week that Creighton just had where some of their um, issues got exposed a little bit, I think you have to look at UConn as a clear-cut favorite in the Big East right now, given Villanova's struggles. They're going to have ample opportunities to win a lot of quality games going forward because the Big East top to bottom is rather strong from a numbers perspective. So, you know, I love this opportunity for this UConn team to get a really high quality seed, especially if you got them at a 66 to one like Eli did earlier this year. And again, I think that this team has a very high ceiling and defensively they put it on you. Offensively, they can get uh, get you in a number of different ways as long as they're able to limit turnovers, which is the one kind of concern that I've seen from them so far. They can have some shaky ball handling and you know throw away some possessions, but other than that, I mean, they share the ball. They're hitting shots. They've got a dominant big man or two. There's a lot to like about Dan Hurley's team right now. Yeah, Newton had some turnover issues to your point against Iowa State in that ball pressure. So something to watch like we we mentioned last week. And to your point about Creighton, let's just head over to the Big East in general with the Blue Jays. They opened the season around 25-1, to 1, now in the 20-1 to 1 range pretty much at every sports book, maybe 122-1 out there. So I asked you this last week, and I'll ask you again, are you concerned with Creighton a little more so, and you just touched on it with their struggles against Nebraska, three-point shooting against Texas, 14 of 67 from three in their last two games. Doesn't mean that they'll, they won't get any sort of regression, but they were bottom 65 in college basketball and three point shooting last year. It doesn't concern me, Eli. What I will say that is that there is a blueprint to beat this Creighton team. You can be tougher than Creighton. That's not to say that this Creighton team is soft. They're just not going to get up in you and be physical like some of these other Big East teams. And we saw that in the Arizona game with Balo kind of getting 30 and 10 and doing whatever he wanted physically to Kalkbrenner. We saw that a little bit in the Nebraska game with the way they inverted some of their guards to post up down low. And, you know, again, we've seen a lot of fight from Creighton. They've had a lot of good comebacks and played some tough teams like Texas Tech and Arkansas, but you can definitely hit them in the mouth a little bit and make them retreat. And if they aren't hitting perimeter shots, then it's a major concern. You know, last year, this was a team that should have been better offensively than many people thought that they were. I thought that given their performance shooting at Maui, that they were better offensively, particularly from the three-point line than they are. But, you know, maybe they benefited from the soft Maui Invitational rims. (laughs) Maybe we're seeing how this team really stands. But what I do like is that they addressed some of those offseason concerns by adding a transfer like Fair. Bello, who ended up hitting a lot of threes in the Nebraska loss last night. They have some guys who can get hot. Baylor Shireman is not going to shoot as poorly as he has the last two games, and we saw him heat up a little bit at the end of the Texas game. But, you know, this team just has to get more physical. Arthur Kaluma has to do a lot more as well. For, you know, a guy that has been projected as a first-round pick in some places, he's not living up anywhere near expectations right now. He looks lost in the half court, like he doesn't really have a place in this offense, and he needs to figure things out and up the motor a little bit, up the physicality a little bit if he's not making plays with his skill level. And I was actually going to bring up Maui uh, Rims as a joke, but <laughs> they, you know, we, we hit on it in our Feast Week yeah. podcast. They, if Creighton isn't, I'll be interested to see if that three-point shooting regresses at a, you know, a big percentage because, like you mentioned, they shot it well against Arizona. They shot it well against Arkansas. They shot it well in the second half against Texas Tech. If you're not getting the benefit of soft rims, maybe the three-point shooting isn't the number that we saw last season, but it might not be, it's not going to be nearly the number that we saw in Maui either. So uh, over to a couple other teams, just to wrap up our features conversation, Scott, looking at Virginia, they opened the season around 40 to one. 
now sitting around 20 to 1 at most sports books. They came back against Florida State, but the one note for me in that game was Reese Speakman was not nearly as explosive as he was throughout much of the first portion of non-conference, I guess, if you want to if you want to go that far, how explosive he was against Illinois down the stretch. He has an ankle injury, so something to watch for for UVA, especially when they face Houston in a couple of weeks at home after getting blown out by the Cougars last season. Now, you think about a typical Tony Bennett defense and how efficient they have to play offensively when they have an elite defense, just because even when they have an elite defense, I should say, because of how methodical they play and how few possessions they have when they are playing at that slow pace. But it's not the typical, prototypical elite Tony Bennett defense that we're used to seeing when you think about a top five, top 10 adjusted defensive efficiency. Sitting at number 20 in Kemp Palms is still a, a pretty good defense and improved from last season, but not the elite, elite defense that you think about Tony Bennett's best defensive teams. No, definitely not, Eli. They're not going to suffocate you like a Houston. They're not going to take the ball away from you at a high rate like a Texas. But the thing that I do like about this Virginia team is when they are principled in their pace and they're playing slow and they're making teams play to them, that offense is way more explosive than we've seen in the past. And we saw that in particular in the Michigan game. They're trailing by 11 at halftime. They make up that ground by the first four-minute uh, clip of the second half. And that's just something we haven't seen from a lot of Virginia teams in the past, that ability to hang you know, 15 points in a four-minute stretch. And you know, a little bit of three-point regression from that hot start to the season, that is something to monitor. I think, like you said, uh, Eli, in part because Beekman is not quite as explosive right now, dealing with a little bit of injury. But I love Love what I've seen from this team in terms of the resilience, in terms of getting the shots that they want and playing at the pace that they like to play at. And as long as Beekman is healthy, he gives you that clear out explosiveness that, uh, you know, again, Virginia hasn't necessarily had in some of their past teams. And the offensive upside coupled with a still steady defense is what makes me like them for long term. Yeah. And Ben Vanderplas having a guy that could space you out at the four considering they were playing Jaden Gardner, you know, more minutes at the four spot last season. And he's not a three-point shooter, hasn't taken a three this season. So you're lacking a guy at the five that you can rely on scoring-wise because you're pretty much banking on Shedrick or Kafaro, pretty much Shedrick down low and on second chance shots. And then if you have Gardner at the four, you're not spacing the floor at those front court positions. So you need a guy like Vanderplas to do just that. And he's shooting over 40% from three this year. Granted, it's not going to be that consistent, but 35, 40%, I think is a reasonable expectation for him. Last team I want to hit on Scott, and we'll touch on them when we look at some of these game previews for the upcoming week. But I think we can both say, at least I can say after watching Indiana at Rutgers against an elite defense versus watching a an abysmal UNC defense to start the beginning of the season. Indiana opened 35 to 1 to win it all. Now 20 to 1 at some sports books, 25 to 1 as well. I would not buy any stock in the Hoosiers winning it all. Race Thompson is one of the biggest liabilities at both ends of the floor. Rutgers was daring him to shoot threes. He had open looks, wasn't taking him. He's not a consistent three-point shooter. We saw it against UNC with Pete Nance attacking him defensively. We saw some three-point shooting regression. Now, granted, Hood Shafino didn't play in that Rutgers game, but Rutgers punched them in the mouth. And for much of the game, Indiana had no answer. Jackson Davis and Xavier Johnson combined for 10 turnovers. I I'm not a big fan of this Indiana team in terms of their long-term outlook. That's not to say that they can't win the Big Ten, but I am not high on this team come March. 
Yeah, that Rutgers loss was certainly shocking, especially when you consider the Scarlet Knights have been handling so many injury issues. Caleb McConnell and Paul McKay, just returning to that rotation. And as you said, Eli, to go from that North Carolina win where they kind of got up and down the floor, did whatever they wanted to the Tar Heels, to then scoring only 48 points at the rack. I mean, <laughs> geez, I know it's unpleasant to go to New Jersey, but God, you got to have something better than that. And Again, 48 points, just a typical kind of Big Ten slog that you have to get through. And yeah, I don't love the turnover issues we saw with this team. I still don't know if the point guard play is necessarily all there. Uh, Jackson Davis just doesn't look fully healthy to me yet either, which is something to watch for with a back injury for big guys. And I'll touch on that more in the Arizona preview. Yeah, I don't love the number from a national perspective. If you like them, maybe look at their Big Ten numbers, see if that dips a little bit, uh, particularly with Purdue rising now, and if you think there's some value in Indiana being better than Purdue. But, yeah, for me, I'm staying away from this team for now. I think that that North Carolina win, a little bit of fool's gold, given where the North Carolina Tar Heels are at this point in the season, and I'm staying away from Indiana. Yeah, and you mentioned the injury for Jackson Davis, not just the back but the thumb too. So something to watch. And we'll head on that a little bit more when we get to the Saturday games. You're listening to the Lines.com Podcast Network. Looking for the latest player props and the best betting odds from the top U.S. sportsbooks all in one place? Then join us right here every day this season for free picks and best bets from the sports betting experts you can trust. Check out the Lines.com NFL Megapod as Matt Brown, Steven Andrus, and Adam Candy break down every game for this weekend's football slate. Join the Coast to Coast podcast crew Mondays through Fridays as Nate Weitzer and Josh Lander bring you the best player props and game lines for Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL. And tune in to Beat the Closing Line twice a week as Nicole Russo, Mo Nawara, and Eli Hershkovich dive into NFL opening lines, plus special guests from the sports betting world. So subscribe, rate, and review to the Lines Podcast Network, the source you can trust to make you a better sports better. Scott, let's tip off our weekly college basketball game previews with one of the better, I guess, two-game slate in terms of the non-conference schedule so far in the Jimmy V Classic with Texas against Illinois and Duke versus Iowa. And the first game in the Jimmy V Classic is Texas. So the Longhorns against the Illini. Kempom projects Texas to open up as a five-point favorite Total at 141. Let's start with you. Any side potentially in this game or any play on the total? I like Texas here, if only because I think that Illinois' turnover issues could really, really rear its ugly head here, especially with freshman guards. Um, You know, for as talented as Sky Clark is off the dribble and for as good as, you know, they've gotten Jaden Epps in terms of his minutes and he's at a great turnover rate. It's a different animal when you're facing a defense like Chris Beard's Texas team this year. They have athletes all over the floor. They're going to force a lot of different looks at you. And for me, that freshman backcourt going against Marcus Carr and Tyrese Hunter is a major cause for concern. And now the thing I do like about Illinois is they are running more offense out of Coleman Hawkins. He's kind of got that Joe Kim Noah type of, you know, look to him where they can initiate offense from him out of the high post. And he does a lot of different things and spaces the floors. So, you know, I think this team goes as, you know, their stars go. If Hawkins is hitting shots and he's initiating offense, if Terrence Shannon is, you know, scoring 20 to 25, they can really get rolling. But to me, I have a lot of concerns about Illinois in this particular matchup with the point with the uh, point guard play and the potential to really have a high turnover issue leading to Texas runouts. But you know, that being said, I, I think Illinois is getting a lot from RJ Melendez lately. I think that Matthew Mayer is going to eventually figure it out and. 
you know, Dane Danger for his physicality and the brutishness of which he plays on the interior could give Texas a little bit of a matchup issue because they haven't necessarily faced a physical, a physical big man like Danger so far. Yeah, and you mentioned just going back to your initial point with Illinois turnovers, definitely a concern. Bottom 110 in turnover percentage across college basketball and Texas with the 11th highest takeaway rate percentage in division one. So not a good matchup for Illinois with their turnover issues, but you mentioned this with Coleman Hawkins and their ability to space out this no middle defense. That's again, allowing a 23% three point percentage, which is going to see regression at some point. If Illinois can hit shots, if Coleman Hawkins can space the floor, if Matthew Meyer can give them, if Brad Underwood is going to play him more than 15 minutes and if Meyer can give them any sort of floor spacing I do think Illinois has a shot to cover the five and I think I'm going to end up on the Illini if this number is around four and a half five just based on natural three-point shooting regression happening to Texas's defense total 141 with a up-tempo pace from both teams maybe you'll look at the over if you do get that regression from Illinois but then again if Texas isn't hitting outside shots and I don't know if we're going to see the regression that we might see from Illinois against Texas's defense because there aren't a ton of three-point shooters on this Texas team, especially at the four and the five spot. So it might be on opposite sides there, depending on the where this number opens at, Scott. But over to the second leg of the, the Jimmy V Classic, Duke a one-point favorite against Iowa, projected on Kempom, total of 147. Similar to Texas, Duke allowing a 26.7% three-point shooting clip from the opposition. Chris Murray outside of him, and he's shooting over 40%. I'm not saying that three-point rate percentage is going to regress a ton, but I think he could be around a 37, 38% three-point shooter. He's got that very similar frame to his brother last season, Keegan Murray, and he's having the breakout season that we hit on on our preseason podcast. But Iowa overall isn't an elite three-point shooting team to kind of take away the regression that could occur to this Duke defense. And also Duke has a big size advantage down low with Derek Lively and Filipowski if they're able to create second chance shots and just in isolation against these Iowa bigs. Yeah, to me, that offensive rebounding rate stands out to me. Duke is second in the country at 41% of their misses and they're going to have that major size advantage on the interior here. That's not to say Iowa doesn't have capable bigs, but you know, with, if Lively is getting healthy and Filipowski is a seven-footer alongside him, you have a six-eight guy like Mitchell on the wing and Whitehead at guard that can help uh, you know get rebounds as well. If they're missing shots like they have been, which I think their three-point shooting will improve, they're still able to clean it up. And Iowa's not necessarily keeping teams off of the offensive glass on the other end of things. I worry about Chris Murray. He's been great in some games. He's been average in one or two as well. You know, great performance against Georgia Tech, but when you're facing NBA caliber wings, is are we going to still see another 30 and 20 performance? I, I don't necessarily think so. So for me, I like Duke in a close one here. I think Iowa can hit some shots and make this one interesting, but I think they are able to limit Chris Murray in terms of their athleticism and their length. I don't love Iowa's guard play here and their inability to really consistently space the floor and you know, to me, I think Duke gets healthier and they get more intriguing. And as long as, you know, Lively is starting to catch lobs and showing himself to be a threat, which he has, then I was going to have a tough time stopping them on the interior. Yeah, and we saw it against TCU. And it's not to say Duke is an elite, elite defense, but when you face length and when you face a physical defense like we saw with the Horn Frogs, who were without one of their bigs in that game when TCU beat Iowa by double digits on Thanksgiving weekend. So 
Iowa's not fared well against physical teams, and Duke, while they haven't necessarily reached their ceiling at both ends of the floor, they have, like you said, a lot of length up front of the front court with Lively and Filipowski. One last note on that Texas-Illinois game is it is a Terrence Shannon Jr. revenge game, but against his former coach and Chris Beard, maybe something to watch for in terms of potentially suffering a little bit of a head injury at the tail end of that Maryland game. I think he'll still play, but just something to monitor in terms of his status. I think Shannon goes off against that no middle defense, especially if Illinois is able to get up and down in transition. I'm not as uh, bullish on Shannon in big games as you are. I think he's had a tendency (laughs) to disappear against great opponents over the years. So again, he's been a wooden award uh, top 10 candidate all year. So he's proven me wrong in some regards, but I still want to see it in every single big game, not just some big games. Over to one last game on Tuesday, Maryland, a one-point favorite projected on Kempom total of 127 at Wisconsin. After Wisconsin won at Marquette over the weekend, I don't think we're going to get a ton of value at home with the Badgers. Maryland allowing a 26% three-point clip, so maybe similar to Texas, similar to Duke. Maybe you get some three-point shooting regression against a a red-hot Wisconsin three-point shooting team, but the question is, how long do Asijin and Hepburn and Klesmith Wofford transfer, how long do those guys shoot at these absurd three-point shooting rates? Asijin is shooting 50% from three. Hepburn, 47.5% from deep. Klesmith, 40% from three. And when you think about this Maryland offense that has taken a major leap under Kevin Willard, granted, Tyler Wall against Dante Scott is a good defensive matchup for Wisconsin, I think. And overall, Maryland's post defense, I think, can match up against Crowell and Wall down low. So maybe it negates both teams' strength up front. It's just a matter of if Wisconsin shoots at that sort of efficiency. I'm not willing to bet on it, but you got to give a home court edge to the Badgers as well. I don't love the number on this either way, Eli. I think Maryland has too many question marks facing an elite defensive front court that Wisconsin can bring and slowing down Scott. To me, like I'm eyeing the under potentially here. It's 127, I think, for Ken Palm. Um, you know, you're looking at two teams that can really defend, that can really get up in you and be physical. It's an early conference matchup. Shooting regression, as you mentioned, with Wisconsin is bound to happen with some of these guys like Chucky Hepburn. Uh, this is this could be a, an ugly game. <laughs> that's that's all I'm going to say. And I'm not going to take a side here on tr- in terms of uh, a spread, but I might be taking the under here. No, it's it's an intriguing look, especially if Wisconsin can control the pace. Over to Wednesday's slate, UConn a six point favorite against Florida, total of one forty eight. One injury note to watch for is Kyle Lofton, who has missed the last couple games with a back injury. If Lofton doesn't play and you only have one reliable ball handler against a UConn team that is turning the opposition over at a top 40 rate across Division One, we saw that issue pop up against West Virginia in the final game of Florida's Thanksgiving tournament slate. The question is, is how low does this number get? Because The market hasn't respected UConn in their last few games, going back to Alabama when they were a a one-and-a-half, two-point dog. Iowa State when they opened as a a six-and-a-half-point favorite, bet down to five, five five-and-a-half. And then Oklahoma State in that game where they 
Granted, the pokes cover the opening number, but UConn opened as high as 10.5, and and that was bet down to minus 8.5, I believe, by tip. So I'm kind of intrigued by Florida as a two-possession dog, and we'll get to some of these mismatches on both sides of the court in a second, but by the time the spread hits legal sports books, how low this number is, Kempom projects at UConn minus 6, total of 148. Yeah, if UConn is able to get that number to five or under two possessions, then I look at UConn here because I think they can slow down Colin Castleton with the too big look that they can throw at him. Florida's three-point defense has not been particularly good this year. It's why they lost to Florida Atlantic in that upset. It's why they've had some issues in some other matchups as well. And UConn, with their ability to space the floor, yes, exactly. UConn, with their ability to space around Sonogo and Jordan Hawkins getting healthy and looking the part, that could be a dangerous uh, look for this Florida defense as well. I, I, I like UConn here again just because their ability to slow down Castleton first and foremost, but... Florida's, you know, three-point shooting has not been great this year, and that's something that UConn could really exploit on the offensive end. No doubt. And you mentioned defense for Florida. That's especially exposable in transition like we saw against West Virginia, like we saw against Xavier. So if UConn is turning the Gators over, let's say Lofton doesn't play, or even if he does, and they're able to push the floor, even get stops, like you said, against Castleton in the low post with two very sound defensive bigs in Sonogo and clinging off the bench, But if Florida's able to, on the flip side, speed up UConn's defense and get them out of the half court where they're a a top 10, arguably a top five team defensively in the half court, then you're able to get Richard, the Belmont transfer, and Bonham some clean looks from VMI from behind the arc, then maybe Florida can cover if it's around two possessions. But we'll see where that number is at. On to Saturday's card, because there weren't a lot of intriguing games when I was looking at the Thursday and Friday slate, Scott. Tipping off with the biggest game on the Saturday odds board, Indiana projected to open as a one-point favorite against Arizona, total of 159. What stands out to you there? To me, you beat Arizona by spacing out their bigs, and we saw that with the Utah loss with Carlson going for five three-pointers and the confusion of Ballo and Tabellis trying to chase him out on the perimeter. Creighton was able to stay in that matchup in part because Kalkbrenner hit a three and stepped out. Kaluma hit a three. They had that hot shooting that we touched on earlier in the podcast in Maui in general. I don't necessarily see Indiana being able to space the floor at the four or five. Jackson Davis doesn't shoot threes. You know, we talked about Race Thompson a little bit. If if you want to go ahead and continue to beat that dead horse, but you know, to me, he's a ma- a major mass uh, matchup issue in this one against Tabellus as well. And yeah, I, I don't love the way Indiana's playing coming off of that Rutgers loss. I think that Arizona's hungry after that loss to Utah, and their front court could really take advantage of here. And again, if they're if they're plus one, I'm definitely playing Arizona here. The one area that. I think Indiana can exploit Arizona is turnovers. We yes, touched on definitely. it when we were heading on Feast Week. Arizona, below average across college basketball in turnover percentage. I've hit on it a ton with Kirk Creesa and his turnover rate going back to last season. That has not improved at all. So if Xavier Johnson is able to turn Creesa over, if you can turn Pallet Larson over, Cedric Henderson too has dealt with some turnover issues off the bench. But like you mentioned, with Arizona and their ability to dominate down low, and especially with Tabellis exploiting a bad defender in Race Thompson, whether it's in the low post or off the dribble, 
And in transition, I think Arizona can get theirs. And if this is around a pick, I think the Wildcats are the play. Pretty high total, but when you think about two teams that are going to play up-tempo, I understand why that number is as high as it is, according to Kempom. Looking at another couple games, another few games on the Saturday odds board, Houston projected to be a seven-point favorite against Alabama at home, total of 131. If you go back to last year's game, Alabama just barely edged Houston at home. A questionable non-goaltending call at the end on a last-second shot by Fabian White, which allowed Alabama to eke past the Cougars. But this line is a little bit higher after last year's line was Alabama minus three, minus three and a half. The Cougars are projected to be, again, a seven-point favorite. Any sort of player lean here for you, Scott? For me, it's all about the turnover issues for Alabama. We've touched on this before in terms of their ceiling and how what we're going to see out of guys like Mark Spears in terms of limiting turnovers. But I like Houston's ability to get out and pressure. Um, what I what does scare me here is I think that Brandon Miller can shoot over the top a little bit. There's not a lot of size on this Houston matchup. We're going to get a fun uh, you know NBA draft matchup with Jarris Walker and Brandon Miller here, two potential lottery picks. But you know, for me, I think Houston forces a lot of turnovers here. They're bulldogs on that end of the floor. They're getting more offensive production from Juwan Roberts now down low to kind of supplement some of the off-shooting nights. And, you know, for me, I think that the turnovers really is the key here. Yeah, and just to contextualize that, Houston forcing the 18th highest turnover rate across college basketball, uh, Alabama with a bottom 70 turnover percentage offensively. So if Houston's able to disrupt against Marcus Sears and against Javon Quinterly, who is turning the ball over at an extremely high rate, like we've seen in his collegiate career, then Alabama's offense will struggle. But like I had on at the beginning of the podcast, when I was talking about three point regression, especially on the defensive end, Houston allowing opponents to shoot 21.1% from deep against an Alabama team that could space the floor. Regression could happen. And if this line is around seven, seven and a half. And with the way the market is overvaluing Houston to an extent because of that size issue and getting spaced out against a team like Alabama could allow the tide to hang within a few possessions with a guy like Brandon Miller. And even though Sears is having those turnover issues, he's shooting the ball at an extremely efficient rate. And that goes back to his Ohio days too. So not any sort of an anomaly there. I might end up on Alabama if this is around seven, seven and a half, but turnover is definitely a concern. Another game that you wouldn't expect to be talking about, or at least I wasn't planning on talking about when I was looking over the schedule to begin the season, but because of Mizzou's undefeated start, it's an intriguing matchup in that sense. Kansas, in a former Big 12 rivalry game, a three-point favor projected to be at least on Kempom on the road at Mizzou, total of 157. Anything for you there, Scott? Kansas has really stood out to me this past week. Uh, You know, didn't necessarily play the toughest of competition, but you know, putting up 90 points on Seton Hall, shooting over 60% from the field and hitting over 40% three-point range. That's the type of offense and performance that you want to see out of a Bill Self team. And to me, this Missouri team doesn't have a lot of bigs that can really uh, exploit Kansas down low, as we talked about with some of the Duke preview and some of the weaknesses Kansas might have as a small ball team. Again, I think it's going to be a raucous atmosphere. I mean, you talk about these, you know, Missouri-Kansas Big 8 battles and it being one of the best rivalries that got taken away in college basketball. So that's going to be a ton of fun. I love the way that this Missouri defense forces turnovers. You know, you look at Dennis Gates and the waves of athletes that he helped that Le- uh, that Leonard Hamilton Florida State system throw at you. We're seeing some of those turnover issues start to come to fruition with Missouri as well. And 
you know, with a Kansas team that's only top 90 in turnover percentage, that's something to watch for. But, you know, Joe Yusufu has really stepped up for Bobby Pettiford off the bench for the Jayhawks. He's given a lot of really nice minutes behind Dewan Harris. Jalen Wilson is still playing like a wooden award contender. And there's more comfort level with secondary guys like Kevin McCuller in this offense now after maybe some first week jitters where they weren't necessarily competing as much and getting as many shots as they wanted. A couple notes for me on this game. If you're betting Mizzou, you're betting them at their peak market price. So you're not getting any sort of value if this line might open a little higher than the Kempom projection. It might open Kansas minus four, minus four and a half. But I don't think you're getting a ton of market value on the Tigers at this point. You mentioned how Missouri can turn over opponents and they're relying on that because their adjusted defensive efficiency is outside of the top 115 on Kempom. So when they can't force turnovers, their defense can get exposed like we saw against Wichita State last week, even though the Shockers blew that late lead. Kansas, though, with turnovers, if Dewan Harris is in foul trouble, we saw it against Wisconsin and against Tennessee, for that matter, in the battle for Atlantis. They can have their fair share of turnover issues. So good point by you. That is something to watch for. But yeah, I'm just I'm not sold on this Missouri team. I don't think you're going to get any sort of value in the number. You mentioned Jalen Wilson, Grady Dick. I think Kansas can space out Missouri and exploit their ball screen, especially pick and roll defense, which is what Bill Self is known for. And Kansas probably wins this game by two or three possessions. I don't know if I'll have a bet on it just because of the situational spot with Missouri at home in a rivalry game, renewed rivalry game, that is. But a little bit of a breakdown from us there. Now, last game I want to touch on here, Scott, is Purdue at Nebraska. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to not gonna do that to you. I'm not going to break down while I'm taking the Cornhuskers, even though I might if the number isn't inflated enough. We'll see you on, on Saturday. You talked me out of Florida State, which I was very upset about after the Seminoles comfortably covered against (laughs) Purdue last week. So I believe you for that. Xavier is a two-point favorite, at least the projection is, on Kempom at Cincinnati in another rivalry game. Total of 154. The one area that stands out to me, I know Xavier's offense has operated ultra-efficiently so far to begin the season. But Xavier is shooting. We haven't hit on this a ton with teams that might regress with their three-point shooting offensively. Xavier is shooting 43% from three. Now, they don't rely on three-pointers to an extreme rate, so it's not like their numbers are ballooned in terms of attempts and the number automatically has to go down. But Soli Boom is shooting over 50% from three. Colby Jones, Jack Nungy, Adam Kunkel shooting, all shooting over 40%. Xavier's defense is very exploitable, especially against a floor spacing offense, which Cincinnati has with the Julius and Landers Nolly, the Memphis transfer. Davenport can space the floor and space out Zach Fremantle, who we touched on is not a good defender. So, and you go back to last season, Cincinnati lost this game, the rivalry game against Xavier by 20 points. So definitely motivation for the Bearcats. I think Cincinnati gets the uh, job done at home and I'll probably take the two, two and a half in this spot. I'm not a fan of the Cincinnati team, Eli. I really like that DeJulius and Landers Nolly can get hot. We saw what happens when those two shot makers get rolling in the first half against Arizona of the Maui Invitational. But by extension, I think that you can really beat this team on the interior. And that's where Xavier can really take advantage here. You know, we're going to see them shoot worse than 43% from three-point range as the season wears on, Eli. I think you're totally right in that regard. But that doesn't mean that they can't exploit them on the interior with Nunji and Fremantle. And that's what I think can happen in this one. And, 
I think that Xavier's been battle tested quite a bit already. They've had a lot of close losses where they just weren't able to get over the hump against elite teams. Cincinnati, by extension, has really not played all that well against elite teams, minus that strong half against Arizona. Ohio State blew them out. They, you know, blew out Louisville. Big deal. They played a Bryant team that was down to six players because of illness the other day. They just haven't really been battle tested yet. And when they have shaky players that are unproven as good as Landers Nolly and David Julius can be, I just look to Xavier as the more comfortable pick here. I think that it can exploit them on the interior. And that's who I'll be looking at in this one. If it's close to a two to three, as we talked about with the Ken Palm line. All right. So potential, another game that we might be on opposite sides on, if it does end up coming to fruition with Illinois and Texas and then Xavier and Cincinnati. So really fun podcast. I thought we gave you guys a lot of great information in the futures market. Broke that one down thoroughly as we're a little under a month into the college basketball season and then dove into six, seven, eight. I can't do the quick math off the top of my head as I'm scrolling through my Google Doc, but we gave you a, a lot of game breakdowns for this week. And as we get closer to conference play in the college basketball season, we'll be giving you guys two episodes per week podcast-wise and then doing a live show on Saturdays. Might have something in regards to a live show this Saturday, I'll release something on Twitter if we do end up doing that. Scott, any last words before we say our goodbyes on the podcast? Keep fading Louisville. This team is garbage. <laughs> They've got another opportunity here with Florida State with the line looking to be at six or so. Again, this Louisville team is in shambles right now. I just want to say that because it's fun to really root against them right now. Which is crazy to say about a Power 5 team. Yeah, they're the 206. Their their offense is 298. Uh, their turnover percentage is 355. Their effective field goal is 346. I mean, their guard play is awful. And when you have they don't awful have guard play, no, they <laughs> don't. And, and they the thing is, again, there's no adjustments for the second half. There's no resistance that's being brought up in terms of coaching. They're just getting exploited in every possible way so far. And you know, they're going to win some games eventually. They have Florida A&M and Lipscomb coming up. But, I mean, this is this is one of the worst high major teams I can remember in quite some time. And I don't think it gets better anytime soon. For Scott Phillips at Phillips Hoops on Twitter, as he, if Kenny Payne listening to this podcast, you're probably going to get some hate mail or maybe we'll get a one-star review. So I'm going to have to allow you to take that one back next week if that happens. <laughs> but you can follow the lines on Twitter at the lines. U.S. Thanks as always for listening to Outside Shots, a presentation of thelines.com. 